Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to the Tree Church Bible Study. My name is Chris, and I am the Director of Biblical Education here at the Tree, and it's my honor, it's my privilege, it's my position to bring you tools such as the Tree Church Bible Study so that you can grow in your understanding of the Word of God and so that together we can explore what God wants to say to us as a church and what God is saying through His Word. And I hope that this podcast has been beneficial for you. From time to time, I'll run into people at church and they will tell me how these have been a benefit to their life and how they're really learning and growing and understanding more of what God wants to say through His Word. And so if that's you and you are of the mind, I would love it. Or if you know of someone who is looking for something like this, I would love it if you would share it with them. You can find this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts where you can very easily share the link out, or you can do it from the Tree Church app. And so uh, be sure to, to, to get the word out there, especially for those that are hungry to know and understand the word of, uh, understand the word of God. And so I would love it if you did that. Today we're going to be picking up in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. And a lot of today's themes are going to continue on from something that Mackie talked about last week. And what Mackie talked about was really the expectations that the disciples would have had when when they kind of came to the realization that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, the way that Mark kind of lays out the story, and he tells it back in chapter 8, is Mark reveals who Jesus is with an exclamation that Peter Peter makes. And then uh, where where Peter says that that you are the Christ, the, the Messiah, and uh, Mackey really laid out well what the idea of Messiah was and who the, 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 the Jewish faith really thought the Messiah would be. And so um, I would encourage you, if you've not listened to that, go back and listen to last week. Uh, what, I, I cannot remember. I believe it's Thursday. If you go back to last Thursday, uh, Thursday's podcast, you can, you'll get a, 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 the opportunity to listen to what Mackey explained about uh, who really uh, Israel thought the Messiah would be. And, um, and today, we're going to be taking a look at a very similar passage, but we're going to be looking at um, Jesus' response and Mark's response to describing what discipleship is and what it looks like to actually be part of the Messiah's entourage. What, it, what does it look like to actually follow the Messiah? Now, and, and, and Mackie, like I said, described this very well last week, how um, the disciples' expectations— and the disciple and, and the reality of, of following Jesus was kind of different. Um, I remember when I was a kid, the, the way that I used to watch commercials for toys, you would think the way that the toys were presented were these highly actioned, um, and I, I cannot remember a particular story of a toy, uh, I, and I thought about it uh, the last couple of days of, of a specific toy where I watched the commercial and I had all of this expectation, but I would say that it's a pretty common thing, a general thing that when we watch commercials, they give us one idea of, of a product. And then when we actually buy the product, when we actually get the toy, uh, it's completely different. I don't know how many of you um, used to order uh, toys from the cereal package. Like you'd want to get a prize, but you had to buy like five boxes of cereal and then mail in the the proofs of purchase and and the form, and then then seven months later, you would get this toy that was nothing of what you expected it to be. And so, like, there's this this difference when you're a kid of of what you see and what you expect and what's reality. 
And I think Mark wants to deal with that today as he lays out for us, and we're going to be looking at multiple different stories, the difference between the expectation and the reality. And, and, and like I said, Mackie explained the expectation part last week. So listen to that. Today, I want to talk more on the passages that are in front of us and, and look at what is the way that Mark describes discipleship, the reality of discipleship. So let's just pick up in verse 30, and we're going to continue uh, in, our, in our passages here, or get started, I should say, in our passages here. Uh, reading verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and, then, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus starts this passage by reminding them that his path is through death. He told them in the passage that Mackie read last week how he was going to go to his death and how he was going to be crucified. And, and so this is what was expected, or this is what Jesus was expecting to, to meet and what the plan was for his life as Messiah. And here we say it again. He, he, let, or he lays it out in front of the disciples that his pathway, though he is Messiah, though he is the Son of Man, his pathway is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they are going to kill him. He's not going to set up a uh, he's not going to set up a, a kingdom on this earth. He's not going to throw the Romans out and and take over. He's he's not going to be the military leader, the hero, the restorer of the nation of Israel in the in the way that they they would have thought it. But rather, he was going to go to his death. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to be. Um, be looked at with derision, and he's going to be rejected, not accepted by the leadership of Israel. He's going to be rejected by the leadership of Israel. And so when Mark comes to and explains what discipleship looks like, it starts with the leader. And the Messiah is one who is not going to sit on a throne here on earth. He's not going to be one who sets up a nation here on earth. He is going to be one who sacrifices himself, who doesn't pertain or doesn't grab for himself power, but rather releases and relinquishes power. And, and so Mark is setting up this idea of, of discipleship is really rooted in this, uh, this idea that those that would follow Jesus are going to follow the path of the cross. They're going to follow the path of sacrifice. And Mark is going to layer this lesson or this this point with this next lesson that he reads, picking up in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The disciples kind of get this, uh-oh, dad caught us moment, right? Like, have you ever been talking about something you shouldn't be talking about and somebody walks in and they kind of look at you like, what are you guys talking about? It, th this is that moment. They, they, they were ashamed of what they were talking about. They weren't, really, um, they weren't really excited to explain to Jesus what they were talking about, but, but Mark displays it that Jesus knows. And so he, he teaches them a lesson. He says, any, if any would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. 
And so the expectation that they have is that they, as part of the Messiah's entourage, that, that means that they're going to they're gonna have access to, to status and wealth and power. And Jesus says, no, the path of the Messiah is one of serving others. And he's going to use an illustration here in uh, picking up in verse 36. It says, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And, and so he takes to, to, to describe what he means, to take and, and explain what it means to serve. He, he grabs one of the lowliest of the low in Israelite society, the child. Though the child was revered as, as a, a symbol of blessing, or the, the child was revered as, um, as one who would carry on the line of, of the Jewish family, and they, they would have been very much uh, seen as a, a great blessing in the lives of people. At the same time, the child had the same status as a servant. As a matter of fact, the Aramaic word for child and servant are exactly the same, according to the New American Commentary. And so what we have here is Jesus takes one of the lowliest uh, figures in their culture, a child, no, no status, no, even the firstborn would not have had any status or rights until he would have re reached age. And so he, what Jesus is saying here is he comes to them and he says, look at this child. If, if you receive one of these in my name, you receive me. He says, if you care for the lowly, you are caring for me. And this stands in the face of, of, in, of only doing for those who benefit you in some way. And this is what Jesus is trying to say, that if you only seek to do good for others because they can do good for you, that's not the heart of a disciple. That doesn't reflect what discipleship looks like. And, and here's what I would say. This is tricky, and we can mask this in very easy ways in our lives. I know there are times that I will, re, I will be generous with someone because I know they are generous in return, or actually I'll be generous with someone because they've been generous with me in the past. Now, if I've ever been generous with you, that doesn't always mean that I've, that I've done this, but there have been times when I've been guilty of this. And, and generally what tends to happen is, is we look for people that can advance our situation. We look for people that can benefit us in some way. We look for people who can help us be successful, who can help us get ahead, who, or just simply make us happy, and, and we do what we can for them. And Jesus comes along and says, no, a disciple is one who serves even the lowly. A disciple is one who does for those who can't do back for them. Verse 38, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And the idea here is someone who is not a part of the direct circle of Jesus was doing ministry, was doing good works, was doing miracles in Jesus' name. And, and Jesus, instead of rejecting that person, 
instead of saying that he couldn't do the work that he was doing, that he shouldn't be casting out demons in his name, he sanctions it. He sanctions the work that this person does. He says that even if, even if he's not a believer yet, if he does this in my name and my authority, it's going to be next to impossible for him to come along and then reject me. And so that puts him in the camp where he is for me and he's with me. And so when God does something through someone and, and maybe they're not within the inner circle, Jesus is saying, let them do it. It's still advancing the gospel. And, and the disciples were concerned that, that this person was not part of the inner ring. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to step out on a ledge and, and kind of um, lean into kind of the theme of what we're talking about here and the theme of, of the disciples' hearts throughout this section of Scripture. And so I think it's pretty safe because you see it even in their question when they ask who is the greatest. I think that the disciples feel like that they're part of some exclusive club, that where their tie and their association with the Messiah has, has put them in a place of status. And, and, and when they see this other person who is not part of their inner club doing something that they can do and are not part of the group, I, I think they get a little jealous. And Jesus says no. And, and, and they get a little insecure. And Jesus will say to them, no, anybody who does work in my name, they're with me. And, and even if they're not directly following me, it may lead to them following me. And so when we see people do good in the world, and yet we may think that they're not a believer, they mean, no, they're not a believer. And it, is, it looks like, and it feels like, and it smells like what Jesus would do. We shouldn't reject that. We should celebrate it. And, and, and because becoming a disciple is not an, an exclusive thing. It, it's, it's something that Jesus comes along and says, no, anyone who's advancing the gospel, anyone who, who is looking to become and know me and become a part of me, he says, they're welcome. And, and being a disciple isn't this unique a uh, special thing, and, and I don't want to say that it's not special, but it's not creating this exclusive club where, where others are out and we are in. It's rather that anybody who loves Jesus and is walking this way and, and, and does good, we should celebrate those things because that means that God is working, that the gospel is advancing, and, 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 and that is what the disciples are being called to celebrate here. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, Jesus is back to talking about children, and, and he's, his reference here is little ones. Now, he's not necessarily literally referencing children. He is actually calling young believers or new believers or those seeking him little ones. Young people in the faith, or young people, young believers, and again, not age, but those that are new to following him and putting their faith in him. And, and what he's saying is that disciples, they, they don't put barriers in the way of others coming to Jesus. They, they look to help them on their jury, journey, not uh, stand in the way. And, and, and that there are dire consequences for hindering people's 
coming to Jesus. And so anything that would cause someone to stumble, that would cause someone to sin, and would cause somebody to walk away from, from Jesus, there's consequences for that. He's going to continue on and, and, and explain some more about consequences and, and kind of the path of, of discipleship here. He says in verse 43, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Okay, I've got like three things that I want to talk about here. Two, uh, two things and a side note that I want to talk about with this passage because there's a whole lot going on here. First, Jesus uses what is called hyperbole. It, it, it's, a, it's an overexpression. It's kind of like... Um, this is actually how I live my life when I parent my kids. Um, I often use hyperbole. Like I'll go above and beyond what's necessary. Um, and, and my wife will often look at me and say, uh, you're going to take away Christmas forever. You're going to, um, they're going to lose their phone for the rest of their lives. You're going to snap their phone in half. Like those are the type of consequences. And she's being sarcastic when she says it. Because in that moment, I'm going over and above and beyond reality. See, in Jesus is using that type of rhetorical tool here, that hyperbole. He's saying, he's not actually asking people to, to pluck out their eyes and to cut off their hands and to, um, and, and, and to, uh, and, uh, what was the other example he gave, um, and cut off your foot. Uh, and so he's using hyperbole here to prove a point. And this is, the point is this, he, he wants them to realize that anything that would hinder them, that would keep them from coming to him, anything that would keep them from staying faithful to him, anything that would pull them off the path of, of, uh, of pursuing life in him and being a disciple, they need to get rid of it. They need to shed it off. And, 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 he's, and he uses negative consequences for those that are not willing to do that. He says, if you're not willing to, to go to the extent of getting rid of what you hold most dear, something that's a, a, a part of you, something that may be an intimate part of, of maybe your personality or maybe that you really, really enjoy, if you're not willing to go that far, it's going to be hard for you to be a disciple and there'll be consequences. There was a movie that came out uh, quite some time ago. It was called 47 Hours and it had James Franco in it. But it was about this hiker who uh, was hiking out, and I believe it was out in Utah, fell into a cavern, and his leg became pinned down. And he had been there for, for uh, I'm assuming from the, the, the film of the movie, he's going to lead up to 47 hours, which is about two days. He had been there for a long time, and he knew that if something didn't happen, he was not going to be able to live. And he had a choice. Do I keep what is precious to me? Do I keep my leg and, and, and keep it on my body and try to keep myself whole or do I live? And, and so the story goes, and I'm not, I'm going to spare the gruesome details, but the story goes that, that he amputates his own leg so that he can get free and so that he can go and find 
find help, and live. And so he makes a choice to remove his leg for the sake of finding life. And this is what Jesus is saying, that if we're not willing to go to those lengths to to get rid of the things that hinder us, it's going to be very difficult for us. Because for Jesus, the alternative to hanging on to that and to keeping a hold of it, which it's not that drastic. We may not physically lose our lives in the moment if we hold on to sin. But the promise that the, the, the New Testament lays out before us is that if we continue to hold on to sin, that eventually that sin leads to death and destruction. Paul and James both say that the, the pathway to sin is death, or the result of sin is death. And that's what Jesus is trying to, to lay out for us here. And, and, and he says so and illustrates this by, by giving them an image and a picture of something that they would have been very familiar with. He uses the term hell. And this is my, my second subpoint here. Now, the term hell here is a translated word, and the word is Gehenna. And it's actually the Valley of Hamon. Now, the Valley of Hamon was known for its child sacrifice to Molech. And this was part of the cultures that, uh, that the Israelites were moving into when they conquered the nation and conquered the land. And what's, what's terrible is that though Israelites knew better, there were times when, when the Israelites would sacrifice their children to Moloch. And, and it was at this site, this place, this Valley of Hamon, that, that this would happen. And Josiah actually comes in, Josiah from the Old Testament in Kings. He comes and he destroys the place. He lays waste to it because it's such an abomination to God. And so he lays waste to this place. And at Jesus' day, it was actually a trash dump. And this is where all their garbage would have ta- been taken. And, and there were fires that were constantly burning out there. I don't know if you've ever been past a dump that has a fire uh, co- continually burning. But they would go and they would burn their trash. And, and there just always seemed like something was going on. And I don't know if you've ever been to a, a trash dump where there's maggots and there's worms and all kinds of this, these uh, decomposing uh, animals that will come in and they will begin to decompose the trash. And, and this is the image that's going on here. So there's this trash heap where there's this eternally burning fire and there's just worm that continually eats and consumes what's being brought into it. He says, that's what your life will be like. That your life will be destroyed if you're not willing to get rid of sin. If you're not willing to part with the things that cause you to sin. This could mean a, a relationship, a friendship. And, and I want to be careful saying this here because some of you are like, my wife or my husband causes me to sin. They make me angry. My children cause me to sin. So should I, should, I, should I get away from them? That's not what I'm necessarily saying. What I'm saying is there are friendships that are healthy for us and there are friendships that are not healthy for us. Friendships that point us to Christ, friendships that don't. There are television shows that, that are helpful, music that is helpful, television shows, music that are not. And so they may be harmless. They may not even be something that um, one would say is, is necessarily all that bad. But the question that we need to ask ourselves and that we need to wrestle with the Holy Spirit is, are we willing to give up those things 
for the sake of finding life and being unhindered in our discipleship, in our pursuit of Jesus, in our following Jesus. And just a side note here, if you're reading along, you may have noticed that verse 44 and 46, they're missing. And, and, and this is why that happens in the, the ESV. Some of the older, uh, like I think, I'm not sure if the King James Version actually has those, in, has those verses in or not, but this is why some of the newer translations do not have those verses in them. The oldest copies of Mark, the, the oldest copies that we have, actually do not have these verses in there. And so they, uh, the verse 44 and 46 are actually exact copies of verse 48, the one about the worms. And so what scholars think is as they look at the oldest versions of Mark that we have, the oldest copies that we have, what they think is that scholars, not scholars, uh, excuse me, scribes throughout the ages have either inadvertently copied and miscopied that, those verses in, or they, they've, they've included those in after each one of the verses about hell to emphasize the point. And so this is something, don't, don't be fraught because I said that they, they might have copied that in. Um, this was a common thing that happened from time to time throughout the Middle Ages as things got copied and into, into, different, um, into different manuscripts. And as they got copied from one copy to another, some of these things actually just kind of happened. And so what scholars have done is they, they believe that the verse 44 and 46 were actually not in the original text, and that's why it's left out. But there is a footnote um, explaining that so that we can understand that, um, that, that there was in some of the later manuscripts and some of the later copies that, that verse 44 and 46, which are copies of, of 48, are, are in there. So uh, just a little bit about kind of why um, when you come across things like that, when you're reading, there's a couple other places where verses are, are, are marked out or they skip over verses. Very similar things are happening in those moments. Let's conclude. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this is maybe one of the most complicated portions of this passage. Now, it, 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 it's, it's referencing back to something in the Old Testament. It's referencing a, a passage in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where the offerings that were to be offered at the temple or, and, and at the tabernacle were to be sprinkled with salt. So when, when, when the Israelites would bring their sacrifices— they were to sprinkle it with salt, and salt was seen to have this purifying quality in the sacrificial system. And, and fire here kind of falls down into that as well, it, it, because fire does two things. It, it not only destroys, but it also purifies. Think about metals, and think about even the best metals. Pure metal, pure gold, is, is, is gold that has been processed through fire. It's been refined. The dross, it, it, when heat has been added to it, it has risen to the, the, the impurities, the dross has risen to the top, and it's able to be skimmed off. And the gold is more pure. And so what we see here is not a destroying fire that everyone is to be salted with, 
a destroying fire, but with a purifying fire. And, and Paul is, or I should say, Mark is saying that in, in focusing on this idea of, purif- of purity and sanctity and, and this idea of being set apart. And so he wants us to, to understand to, uh, that disciples are ones who are purified and set apart from the surrounding culture so that they can be uh, witnesses, so that they can be witnesses, so that they can be different, set apart, different than the culture. And, and Jesus is calling the disciple to not give that up here. He says, don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose that, that, that purifying agent in your life. Don't lose that purity, that goodness, that wholeness. He says, pursue that and keep that because it's in that moment, it's when you look different and you love different. And not this is this gets a bad rap in our in Christianity at times. Some Christians think that to do this means to reject the world and to condemn the world and um, to, to not admit even the, the reality of the brokenness still within their lives and within the lives of, of, of the people in the church. And, and, and it gets this kind of bad rap where people withdraw from the world because they see the world as broken and yet um, find different ways to justify their own sin. And that's not what we're talking about. And that's not what Mark is calling them to. He's calling them to actual purity and to actual, and, and, and even though you're sanctified and you're set apart, it doesn't mean that you condemn the world. It means that in that purity and in that sanctification, you love differently than everyone else. That you are gracious when, when everyone else is aggressive, you are gracious. And, and so there's, this is the, the, the type of life that Mark is describing, and you see it modeled in Jesus. Jesus is offensive first and foremost and mostly to the religious leaders. And so Jesus reaches out to those who were outcasts, those who were outside the realm of, of the Jewish faith. He, he goes out and he eats and drinks with sinners and with the broken and with the down and out and the prostitutes. And so there's not this idea of, of being so separated and so different from the world that you can't relate with the people of the world, that you lose value or lose the value for those people or their intrinsic value, I should say, but rather that, that you are so full of God's love, that you are so full of life in him, that you're set apart, that you're sanctified, and you realize that your, your life is no longer about itself and about yourself, but it's really about putting on Jesus and modeling Jesus and living and loving and, and, and sharing the gospel message, the gospel way. And, that, and that's really what a disciple is. It's someone who has been set apart to exemplify and live out and, and, and testify to that God is real, that Jesus is his Messiah, and that he went to the cross and that he came back to life and that there's life and hope found in him. And so through all of these passages, all these different sections and stories that we read today, Mark is really giving us a realistic picture of discipleship. And this is the picture. Mark's discipleship looks like this. Sacrifice. Discipleship looks like sacrifice, not power. Discipleship looks like serving, not being served. Discipleship looks like 
serving the lowly and those that cannot give back or repay back to you. Discipleship looks like being focused on gospel advancement, not status. Discipleship looks like doing what it takes to remain faithful and to find life in Jesus. And discipleship looks like remaining sanctified and purified and even being sacrificial in our pursuit of Jesus and in our interactions with the world around us. And so guys, this is Mark's picture of discipleship. This is who Jesus was. And this is what he modeled for his disciples. And this is what Mark lays out for us here. And so as you process this today, and as you think about it uh, this weekend, and as, as it just keeps kind of coming back to your mind, I want you just to ask this question. Are there, is there an area or are there areas where I do this well, but there are areas where I don't do this well? And here's the thing. I have plenty of them where I do them well, and I have plenty of them where I fail. And so I, I want to, all of us will have these places that we need God to grow us and to help us. And so just process through that this week. And, and I pray that, that this has been uh, helpful in, in, in coming to a realistic expectation of what it looks like to, to be a follower of Jesus. And uh, guys, I, I, I love that you're joining us here. And I pray that you have an amazing and wonderful week as you learn to follow Jesus in these ways. Have a great week.